bipartisanship is alive and well here at Wedge Issues. For this week's episode, I put two campaign operatives in the same room, a Republican and a Democrat. No punches were thrown, many laughs were had, and I think they may have agreed on more than they disagreed. I'm Jesse Opoyan, the Cap Times political reporter, and this is Wedge Issues, a podcast about the 2018 elections in Wisconsin. Stay tuned for my conversation with Stefan Thompson and Joseph Pecky about their backgrounds in politics, what it means to win, what they've learned from losing, their predictions for the 2018 elections, and their hopes for some bipartisanship in the future. Joe Zapecki. I'm currently the president of Zapecki Communications, a public affairs and public relations and political consulting firm in the Milwaukee area. It's starting to feel like I've been at this for a really long time. I was that kid who spent my summer before my freshman year of high school volunteering for a congressional campaign in 1996. Uh, And in some respects, time has flown by, and in others, it feels like a lifetime ago. But in those 22 years, give or take, I've volunteered on campaigns. I've uh, served in senior roles on uh, local, state, federal, national campaigns, been a consultant, uh, had the honor of serving in the Obama administration for two and a half years during his first term, and uh, have for the last, I guess, six or seven years now been back home in Wisconsin. Want to talk about maybe some major campaigns that stand out in your mind? I I mean, certainly the three presidential campaigns uh, leave a mark. Those were General Wes Clark for president in 2004, the Chris Dodd for president juggernaut (laughs) in 2008, and uh, the Obama for America reelect in 2012. You know, more relevant to the state of Wisconsin since I moved back, uh, served as a senior advisor to uh, Mary Burke when she ran for governor four years ago. I'm Stephan Thompson. I'm the president of Battleground Strategies, a political consulting and public affairs firm. I haven't been doing this as long as Joe. Uh, He's a little bit older than I am. But um, I was the campaign manager for George Bush at my high school for our mock election. Wow. We won. They get us young. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Uh, Professionally, you know, I got started when I was in college. I was a marketing major, always kind of liked politics, grew up in a conservative family. I almost became a tool and die maker. I had an apprenticeship lined up, and uh, the company ended up going out of business, had no clue what I wanted to do with my life, studied marketing, and fell in love with campaigns and didn't know that campaign management was an actual industry. And so I started reading about people like Carl Rove and James Carville and these celebrity operatives. And I thought, well, this seems kind of cool. And then I just got fully immersed in it. 2005, I sent an email into a campaign for Attorney General Paul Booker, the DA at the time in Waukesha, ill-fated campaign. We lost in that primary to J.B. Van Hollen. So between September of 06 and April of 07, I worked on three losing races. <laughs> so um, humbling experience to start. But after that, just kind of bounced around to different campaigns, um, issue advocacy groups, got into opposition research, was kind of my niche. Nobody else wanted to do it because it's you know, really a thankless task, but a great skill. And uh, that led me to Governor Walker, well, then candidate for governor, uh, Scott Walker's race in 2010, and then became the executive director of the state Republican Party for two years. What I thought was going to be a normal election cycle, 2011 and 12, turned out to be 15 recall elections and a presidential cycle and a Supreme Court recount. And after that, managed Governor Walker's successful reelection, uh, campaigning against my friend Joe here. And uh, then- Now up, friend. We should now friend. that we, right. we did not <laughs> know each not other yet. back then. We, we yeah. did not. We did not. Um, and then- uh, I set up my own consulting business in 2015, did the governor's presidential super PAC, and since then I've been advising super PACs, candidates, issue advocacy groups around the state. So what, for each of you, 
sparked the interest, which was very young for both of you, and what keeps you in this business, which can be kind of a thankless and grueling job? I, I can't really point to a moment. I, you know, Stefan mentioned that he was raised by a conservative family, the opposite for me. My parents very uh, active in their community to this day. It's just sort of always been something that was talked about, discussed within our family. But I always found American history in particular fascinating. And this, this notion, this idea that individuals and small groups of people can do extraordinary things. And that, the, you know, while the, the past is, is written and the ink is dry, it's up to all of us uh, to sort of shape the future and write the future that we want to, to see. And you can call that naive and idealistic, and some have, but I think at our core, that's why most of us do this, is because we really do care about the world around us outside of our own daily lives and believe that government and politics are a way to influence that. Growing up in a family that talked a lot of politics, my dad was a small business owner, conservative guy, taxes, regulation was a regular topic at the dinner table. <laughs> my grandparents were Serbian immigrants, and so they were rabidly anti-communist. So Ronald Reagan was like on the mantle in our house um, for obvious reasons. And so for me, it was just a topic of discussion in the household. I uh, just knew I never wanted to be a lawyer and never wanted to run for office. <laughs> and so once I started reading about campaign managers, I'm a competitive guy. I grew up playing sports. I'm 5'9". I knew I was not going to be you know, the next Michael Jordan. But there's a lot of adrenaline in running campaigns. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of intensity. I love that and I feed off that. But also being passionate about something in that in a campaign, you get caught up in the day-to-day -day grind of latest news stories and polls and whatever. But at the end of the day, as Joe said, you're part of American history. And the things that you're doing change people's lives. It's so easy to get caught up in the minutia, especially today with content flying at you in every direction to realize after an election is over, when you win, you've made history. And not a lot of people get to do that. And I've been very blessed to be a part of that process along the way. And you, you both have really watched the political landscape of Wisconsin change dramatically in the time that you know, since you both came involved in politics, do you do you think Wisconsin? I mean, it, for for years and years and years, it was a, a blue state on the map in presidential years. You know, the last six, seven, eight years, we've watched it become very red at the state level, and then that was put to the test in 2016 when Donald Trump won, and it was the first time a Republican won Wisconsin in a presidential election since 1984. Do you think Wisconsin is a blue or red state? Is it purple? Or does it even matter how we classify these things anymore? Yeah, I mean, this is a very cyclical business, right? I mean, I remember 2004, Bush gets reelected, Republicans maintain the majority of Congress. And people were writing about the permanent Republican majority. Two years later, we lose <laughs> control of both houses. And George Bush is the most unpopular president in the history of America. And so I think that for me, it's been a dramatic change, especially coming in when I did in 06 and in 08. Losing is very humbling. You learn a lot from it. It makes you appreciate the wins that much more. Um, but when, when I got started, you know, Jim Doyle was the governor and WEAC was the 800-pound gorilla in Wisconsin politics. And it was a very different world. I think that, you know, we're in a red cycle right now. And we do have a long history of having Republican governors. I think we've won eight of the last, I think, 11 governorships in Wisconsin and uh, or last, last 11 governors races, I should say. We've held control of the state assembly for 22 of the last 24 years. So there's definitely some trends there. But the last eight years 
have been, I think, the strongest Republican victories we've seen in the second half of the 20th century. We go through cycles, right? And I think that at some point, you cannot continue to win everything. We obviously lost some races this year so far. But culturally, I think that the recall of Governor Walker in 2012, I think, broke the fever for a lot of rural Wisconsin voters culturally that were moderate Democrat, lean Democrat voters, Western Wisconsin, North Central, Green Bay area, that... Um, you know, looked at Madison and the protests, and I think they're part of what you call the silent majority, that that's not who they are as Democrats. And I think that that culture fight in general has changed their views. And I, I mean, maybe they swing back around, but I think that's been one of the biggest changes that I've seen is the Republicans' ability to not only win in places like Green Bay, but go to 60%. That's a huge margin. Same thing in Wausau and Trump doing as well as he did along the Mississippi River when no other Republican has done that in, in the modern era. So I think that there's some real cultural differences, I think, between the current Democratic Party today and where it was when I got started maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I'm not sure what Joe has seen, too. But. You mentioned 2004. The day after the 2008 presidential election, the Wisconsin State Journal had a full-page front, you know, front cover spread, Is Wisconsin Forever Blue? <laughs> and I remember that because in 2012 – when we were working for President Obama's reelect, that front page was framed and hung on the office wall of one of our senior <laughs> leaders on the campaign. And it's like, wait a minute, this uh, this business has a, a way of changing on a dime. I, w- I won't disagree with any of the analysis that Stefan made about rural Wisconsin, western Wisconsin, northeastern Wisconsin. But what I will add to that is that particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, the the acceleration of changes, demographic, technological, societal, have been at warp speed. And I think that that has changed all of our politics. I mean, yeah, we can say that Wisconsin has been primarily red for the last eight years, but at the same time, Barack Obama won the state by more in 2012 than he did in 2008. And Tammy Baldwin was elected to the United States Senate for the first time. So it goes back and forth and to the question of, you know, are we a red state? Are we a blue state? Are we a purple state? The best answer I can give is stolen from Westworld, where, you know, are you human or a host? If you have to ask, does it really matter? This is a place where politics matters, voting matters. We still see very high participation compared to some other states in the country. And I don't think anybody can sit here today and say, I know what's going to happen this November. I know what's going to happen two years from now. I know what's going to happen 10 years from now. This is going to be a place where races are always competitive. And I think that that's a good thing. That's how it should be. Because whether it's states that are always blue or states that are always red, I don't think you see as good outcomes uh, or sort of realities come to the fore. Yeah, I think that part of it too is I think, you know, I've got, and Joe and I have gone back and forth on campaigns before and working uh, on the opposite side, but I think we have a really engaged electorate in Wisconsin that pays attention because you get attention from whether it's you know, presidential campaigns and state races, they're always competitive. Our candidates campaign in every part of the state. I think that gets them engaged. Um, I think that the operative class here is really strong on both sides. I think that whether you're talking about the candidates or the uh, the parties or even independent expenditure groups, they're all really well run. And when you know people from out of state come in here and they're like, "Wow, your state assembly races are really intense," <laughs> I know. And they're like, "How much do they make? Like forty-five grand a year?" And like, you spend a million dollars on this race, and or that's how intense these campaigns are. Yeah. But we have really tough campaigns here, and I think that particularly since the recalls. 
I think also, and I may regret this at some point, but um, the press corps here as well is as battle-hardened as the operatives. And I think that has made them a lot stronger as well And that we have a, a media and a press corps here that I think is highly engaged at a level that you know, I can't compare it to other states what their state beat reporters are like. But I think those three things coming together help make Wisconsin a very competitive state and helps engage overall. care about this state deeply and these issues are going to be with me for a long time. Us talking about a five-year plan is not helping me. It may be fine for you, but it's not helping me. Now, whether they're from the community, I don't care. Whether they're from space, I don't care. As long as they can provide the best visual experience for Madison. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. These are Cap Times Talks, smart conversations about big topics in Madison. Look for Cap Times Talks on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. Democrats are coming off of a relatively successful run of elections. You talked about you know, the nonpartisan state Supreme Court race still fought on those red-blue lines. Um, a couple special election wins and, and then one, uh, one win for the Republicans. How does that, I mean, how does that inform what campaigns do heading into November? And, and even August, I guess, we've got primaries first. Well, the Republicans have to wake up. The governor said so. So I'll, I'll give this one to Stephen first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it shows Repu- I mean, Republicans have been on a hot streak. And, you know, as I said earlier, I've lost races. Um, people like, you know, Scott Walker, Robin Voss, Scott Fitzgerald, they've lost races. They've seen good and bad cycles. I feel confident in our leadership and that we know what it's like to have a win in our face. But one of my concerns is that a lot of candidates, a lot of young legislators and young congressmen around the country and young operatives don't know what it's like to lose. And, it's, and, it, and it strengthens your spine, as Joe and I both know, when you lose a tough race, you know how hard it is to win at any level in this business. And so for me, I look at, you know, I'm grateful that we have leadership that understands how to run good campaigns, recruit good candidates, raise, raise dollars. Uh, I think November is always a different beast in special elections. I think that having Scott Walker on the ballot, he is as beloved by the Republican Party base today as he has ever been. And I think from a base turnout perspective, um, it's just going to be dramatically different in November than it was in June or April. Special elections and the things that we've seen are tea leaves, and you can start to get a sense of what's happening. And I don't think anyone can deny that Democrats are fired up and and eager to be out there voting. I think that's understandable given uh, what's happening in Washington, D.C., given the the surprise election of Donald Trump. I mean, you know, neither Stefan or I thought that's what we were going to be opining about on election night 2016. And I don't think anybody can look at the numbers in terms of the votes in November of 2016 and say other anything other than a lot of Democrats stayed home. I'm sure it was both because there was a lack of enthusiasm for our Democratic candidate and there were people who were just turned off by the whole process. And now that we are seeing some of the costs of that in very stark human terms, I think Democrats are going to remain fired up and motivated and energized. And, you know, the question for Republicans is how will they activate and energize and motivate their base? And for that, 
small in the middle. I think it's a Governor Walker joke. Stefan will check me on this. It's, you know, people talk about, you know, eight or 10 percent as sort of independents or swing voters. And in, in Governor Walker's Wisconsin, it might be eight or 10 people uh, that go both ways. And so <laughs> we have to see whether those folks who, you know, in one election will vote Republican and in the other vote Democratic, if they are influenced by what they're seeing nationally or if they're more going to be paying attention to what happens here at the state level and the individual candidates, you know, once we have a Democratic nominee and put their vision up against the governor's track record. But it's certainly going to be another hard-fought, hotly contested race. And I think, too, <clears throat> candidates matter. They really do at any level. A good candidate is largely going to beat a bad candidate. The wind at your back can help. But I think that in some of the races that we've seen here and around the country, Democrat candidate recruitment has been stronger than I've seen in recent years. It's not universal, but that's something that, you know, what we saw in, in 2014 and 2016, you know, there's a lot of, you know, excuses that Democrats come up with for losing races, but they didn't recruit a lot of candidates in a lot of races, especially down ballot. And I think that this time you're seeing a difference there. Uh, the good news is I think we have great candidates, we have a great record, and the power of incumbency is very strong. And so Governor Walker's political operation, the state Republican Party that we have here has proven track records. I also think that our we have what's made us successful is we've got a really good team environment and that we've got a governor who cares about what his state party does. And that's not always the case. It's it's very rare to see that actually. And so when you have leadership and people that have taken on the high-profile roles around the country, whether it's you know, Walker or Reince or Ron Johnson, Paul Ryan, to our legislative leadership, when it comes time to winning, we're on the same page. And that's something that as long as they stay on the same page, which I'm confident that they will, I'm going to feel confident about November. So incumbency is a, a good point to jump from because we, we have talked about um, the years past where you know, Governor Walker has won. Tammy Baldwin has been elected to the U.S. Senate. Governor Walker's won again. With that, with that sandwich of strong Democratic and Republican victories and the two of them being the incumbents on the ballot this year and with such a small percentage of people who can go both ways in a state that's as set in its ways in, in, as Wisconsin, are there Walker-Baldwin voters? Um, can the two of them be successful incumbents or, I mean, what happens? What, <laughs> what happens with both of them on the ballot this year? If, if either of us knew for sure, we'd make even more money. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's a really good question because we haven't seen at the top of the ticket, you know, Wisconsin has a long history of the candidates, you know, trailing one another very closely. Uh, I think 1998 was the last time you had candidates for governor and Senate from different parties win in the same cycle. And that was Tommy Thompson and Russ Feingold. Since then, it's been, you know, Walker-Johnson, you've had Cole and Doyle, even, you know, presidential cycles, whether it's Obama, Baldwin, and Thompson, or I'm sorry, and, uh, and, and Trump, and Johnson as well, um, they closely align one another. And Tammy Baldwin actually had a pretty significant drop-off from President Obama in 2012. I think she took uh, over 100,000 less votes than he did that cycle. But nonetheless, she, you know, she still won. So the question is, I think, you know, knowing that on the Senate side, you've got a Republican primary. On the on the Gov side, you've got a Dem primary. Um, Walker and Baldwin are both, I think, um, you know, have proven themselves to be good campaigners with good political operations. Um, w how close are the margins in these races? If these are 50-50 races, then you can see it. But if there's a larger margin, then it's it's really hard to see that many voters cross over in, in, in a Walker-Baldwin or Baldwin-Walker scenario. I, I would agree with that. I, I think back in this question to 2004 
when Russ Feingold was pretty healthily. I mean, not again, he didn't get 60, or I don't even think he got 55, but he won his race uh, for re-election to the United States Senate by a lot more than John Kerry won the state at the presidential level. You know, Stephen made the point about Senator Baldwin getting fewer votes than President Obama in 2012. That's sort of a traditional every ballot line down the ballot you go. There are drop-off votes. Understanding all of those dynamics, what you saw in 2004 was there had to be George W. Bush, Russ Feingold voters. There's just no question, and a pretty significant amount of them. I think in the 14 years since that race, the world has changed in a way that there are fewer ticket splitters. This is going to be an interesting test to find out how many there still are. So I would like you each to assess the biggest challenge and biggest opportunity for your party heading into November. Yeah, I think challenge-wise, it is the fact that we've accomplished a lot at the state legislative level over the last eight years. I remember when Jim Doyle was governor and he vetoed everything that we tried to do (laughs) and the motivation and the furor that was there behind our party's base to accomplish that. Uh, as well as, you know, independents at that time who wanted you know, Republicans, they, they hired a Republicans to do a Repu- what they view as a Republican problem, right? You guys are good at creating jobs and fixing the economy. Cool. Go do it. We've done that. We've accomplished a lot. And it's great to have a record to run on. Um, but, you know, the voters are also fickle and they want to know what are you going to do for me next? And so I think one of the biggest challenges for Republicans at the statewide level, uh, and I'm confident that they'll get there, but it's it's going to be a challenge is what is the vision for the future using the track record of success as a backstop, but what else are you going to do? I think is something we got to do. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that, um, you know, one of the, one of the pitfalls, you know, that we, we have is just the fact that we've won so much. And so it's keeping the base motivated, which with governor Walker on the ballot, I'm not concerned about if governor Walker was not running this year. I mean, I would, I would be under a desk somewhere probably, (laughs) but, um, you know, he has a proven track record there. So I think that changes things significantly compared to what we're seeing around the country and some of the other states where we don't have term limits for governors, where other states do. And I think that's going to be to the detriment of some of the states where they have gubernatorial primaries and they don't have that incumbent there helping keep things together. So in terms of challenge, it, it's funny how similar the challenge is. It's what is our vision for the state of Wisconsin going forward? It is a lot easier to be against something or against someone, in this case, eight years of Governor Walker, than it is to hold people's attention and say, this is where we disagree with what the governor has done, and this is how we get to where we want to go. And if we can't make that case as a party, we don't deserve to win. It's just as cut and dried as I can say it. And, you know, In a way, opposition is easier than, than governing and leading. Governing is hard painting a picture of where you want to go at a time of such change in terms of demographics, in terms of technology, in terms of the world environment, it's hard. And so our challenge is we have to be very clear about where we want to go. There's also real opportunity in that because as Democrats have been out in the wilderness for the last eight years here in Wisconsin, I think there has been a lot of thinking about how do we continue to modernize our economy? How do we move into the 21st century technology fields in a way that sustains this economy for the next 30, 40, 50 years in the way that manufacturing certainly did for the last half century of the 20th century in Wisconsin? All of that, there is tremendous opportunity if we figure out how to chart that course uh, and stick to it. And I would add, hopefully, in a way that turns the temperature down a little bit 
and works with Republicans. That's something that's also been missing in the last eight years is because you've had the Republican control across the board, there hasn't had to be a lot of that back and forth and compromise and meet in the middle. And I think it is more likely than not that there's some form of mixed government in Wisconsin starting in 2019 than there has been for the last eight years. And I think if we get into that sort of mixed control government dynamic again, uh, it's going to be a whole new ballgame. And I hope that we can be worthy of that and live up to that. So in that spirit of bipartisanship uh, for our closing question, (laughs) since I've gotten the two of you in this room together, I would ask each of you to name a politician from the other side of the aisle that you respect or admire. Well, Obviously, the, uh, the the caveat that I'm not endorsing the policies of the person <laughs> or that of I'm going to vote for them. Yes. But, you know, I grew, like I said, I grew up in West Dallas and around a lot of blue-collar guys. And Joe Biden, I grew up with like 30 Joe Bidens around me. The the jocular wit, punch you in the arm and give you some unsolicited advice about Lord knows what. <laughs> and, um, and also, I mean, when you look at, at his life and the tragedy that he's gone through, losing a wife, losing a one-year-old child, being able to pick himself up and serve the way he did. Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the recent loss of his son, um, Bo, just a few years ago, I, I can't imagine losing two children. And that, that's just, I think, an, an incredible story. And it's something that we should all look at and say, you know, this is how you can handle tragedy and persevere. A lot of respect for Joe Biden in that, in that respect. Yeah. This is the one that I may regret. Mm. Uh, I'm going to uh, break some news here and tell the world that the very first person I ever voted for was John McCain. Mm. And I have always been a fan. And now to save myself, this was in the 2000 primary because Al Gore was clearly going to be the Democratic nominee. (laughs) And uh, then Governor Bush and Senator McCain were battling it out. I have, have long been a fan and an admirer. And that's not to say, just as Stefan pointed out, that doesn't mean I agree with him on everything. I agree with him on a lot. It doesn't mean that he's led a perfect public life. He will be the first to tell you that he hasn't. But I was rem- have been reminded of my admiration for, respect for him. I just read The Restless Wave, uh, what he himself has said will be his, his final book. And uh, this is a guy who, it just to his core, represents sacrifice and service to his country and pointed out uh, in the book something that I am trying to learn from and be better about every single day, and I think everybody should, which is that we have got to get back to a place where we view the, the folks who disagree with us politically as rivals and not enemies. And I, you know, that's why I'm happy to sit here with Stefan today. We always <laughs> have fun. It doesn't mean we agree <laughs> on much by way of policy, but I think that he and I both we want to see the same things, right? It's the outcomes that, that both parties want are the same. It's the, the way we get there that is the difference. And that shouldn't make us enemies or opponents. It should make us rivals. And when we see what's happening with what can only be described as a chaos presidency and the very real implications of that, we got to be better about that from candidates to operatives to voters to just citizens and, and get back to being rivals and not enemies. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. American culture right now and politics is so polarizing. I mean, f- for a lot of different reasons. 
Um, but what I found, you know, Joe and I didn't know each other before we started doing contributing together with TMJ. But I think a lot of the professionals get along better than a lot of this, the traditional voters. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I have a hard time, you know, my best friend, one of my best friends who lives across the street from me, he's from L.A. He's a Democrat. Even worse, he's a Vikings fan. Oh, right. God. But, <laughs> right. That's inexcusable. <laughs> right. But nonetheless, you know, we are very different politically, but we don't take it too personally. We respect each other's viewpoints, but we don't let it get in the way of our friendship and that, you know, our kids are friends. We have a good time together. We've got a, we do on paper, not a lot in common, but in, in practice, I mean, we're really good friends. And I think that that's something that not a lot of people on the outside realize is that the professionals, a lot of the legislators, our examples here, Joe Biden and John McCain yeah. are, I mean, two of the best thieves. friends. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so I think that's something that it's really hard. And I don't know, I don't think anybody has an answer for how you get around it. Hopefully leadership at every level can give us the examples of, of how to move forward. I think that's where it needs to come from. We all just got to do better. I, yeah, it's not, it's a very, very difficult problem. We did not get here overnight and we're not going to solve it overnight, but uh, we all got to do better. One podcast at a time. One there podcast at a time. We're making it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We'll be back every Friday with new episodes, so if you're not subscribed, get on it. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere else you find your podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any questions or suggestions, feedback for me, you can tweet me at jessieopie, J-E-S-S-I-E-O-P-I-E, or you can email me at J-O-P-O-I-E-N at madison.com. And if you're enjoying Wedge Issues, check out our other Cap Times podcasts like The Corner Table and Mad Splainers. Also, leave us a rating or a review and tell all your friends about this awesome Wisconsin politics podcast that you can't stop listening to. We'll see you next week.